0: You're listening to Plane Talk with Thomas and Clay. Well, hello and welcome to the first episode of Plane Talk. I am Clay.
1: And I'm Thomas.
0: And uh, you're listening to Plane Talk. We're going to start this out by kind of introducing ourselves and talking about what our aspirations are in aviation. And then we're going to go into a segment called The Week in Aviation, talk about all the upcoming things in aviation, all the aviation news. And then we've got a big topic today, something that kind of hits home for every aspiring pilot uh, what kind of flight school to get into whether you want to go part 61 141 we're going to talk about the pros and cons and what the best way to go about doing your private pilot certificate on up to whatever you decide to do, whether it's uh, the airlines or private flying or just recreational flying on your own. So, uh, go ahead, Thomas. Uh, so, uh,
1: I currently attend a 141 school here in uh, Waco, Texas. It's uh, TSTC. Uh, and it, what it really dwindled down to is as to what my decision was between part 141 or part 61, it really came down to how I was able to finance it. Uh, so, a lot of issues that part 61 students have is uh, there's no uh, Uh, loans that actually are applicable towards Part 61 schools since they're not uh, accredited. Um, and, and that's something that, that was, like I said, was a, was a big factor in uh, considering which school to go to. So the, the real difference between a Part 141 and a Part 1, uh, 61 school is that Part 141 schools are entirely regulated. They have uh, syllabus. They're all standardized. So all the training, regardless of which instructor you have, uh, whatever whatever point you're training, uh, they're going to expect certain things. Very uh,
0: much like a college, right? Right. So what
1: uh, 141 school do is they have these things called stage checks. So for... Uh, I'm I'm currently in instrument training right now, and uh, the way they split it up was uh, the first stage was all BAI, basic attitude instrumentation. So what it was is constant rate climbs, descents, turns at uh, constant airspeeds or turn rates or what have you. Uh, Stage two focused on approaches, and stage three was all cross-country in route stuff. And and what that really does is that makes sure that at the end of each stage that you're competent and familiar with the material required to know before you move on uh, to the next part. So... That's one thing that, that just kind of shows how structured uh, Part 141 schools are opposed to Part 61, which I'll still say uh, Part there's nothing really wrong with Part 61 schools. Uh, it, you know, the instructors are the same. Um, in my opinion, there are Part 61 schools that do have better instructors than, than what you'll find at a 141 school. Um, so uh, my recommendation is if you, and I've seen a lot of people uh, in a part 61 schools that do this, that if they have the funding there, uh, for example, if you've already started a career and you've saved up the money, uh, like I said, it's a lot less regulated. It's more one-on-one with your instructor, but uh, Clay here uh, actually does his training part 61. So he can give you more of a personal experience out of that.
0: Yeah. So like you said, part 61 is a little less structured than a part 141 school minus the uh, the stage checks. The The information is the same. You're getting the same license at the end of it but part 61 you kind of go at your own pace whereas 141 you're doing a ground school then you do your stage checks and then you get ready and go and take your test whereas at a part 61 you do it at your own pace so for me that entailed doing an online computer-based uh, training course for my ground school. I prefer the King schools. And uh, you go through that course, and it gives you all the, the legal knowledge and the basic information that you need to give you a background to start your actual flight training. So do the, we do the CVD, and then when that's completed, then... You go to you. You get a certificate and go take your written exam, just like you would at a 141 school, and then you start your flight training. And sometimes, especially with 61 schools, uh, you can do the computer-based training and the flight training at the same time. And they'll tie in whatever you're learning in flight training into the computer-based training. And so you you do your your takeoffs and your landings and your pattern work, in route cross country stuff, learning about weather. And the, most instructors will add that into it. For me, I was kind of on the, uh, like Thomas said, on the part where the the instructors will take more time and things. So I ended up having four or five different instructors uh, until I got my actual license. And so I learned a lot of different things from that. And where the first instructor i had it was in a g1000 cockpit it was very advanced and i was just starting out and then i kind of regressed in my training instead of learning what i needed to learn it was okay well you're doing takeoffs and landings and your basic attitudes of flight but you're not really learning the the daily knowledge that you would need to completely successfully complete a flight so i i changed different instructors and finally found the one that took me through to my uh, private and i ended up with 60 or 75 hours by the time I got to my private pilot that flexibility allowed me to kind of work at my own pace I did it in high school so parents said you had to make a so it was easier to do at my own pace for 61 rather than 141 because I wasn't going to shell out the money at that time because it is it can be quite expensive to do a 141 school because you do have to outlay all that money at the same time and that's what he was talking about with the finances is it's all at once rather than kind of split up throughout it. Right. So,
1: and one, one important thing about that is if you don't have the money and you can't fly consistently, for example, uh, my school, uh, they don't require it, but it's, it's highly recommended that you fly at least three times a week. And obviously whenever you're doing, for example, private pilot training, you're restricted by weather and visibility and whatnot. Uh, one thing that can be a big factor in your training is your proficiency. So if you're only able to fly once a week, a lot of what your training is going to be is becoming proficient in what you've already learned uh so it's just like driving a car if if you don't drive a car for two weeks then you're going to be a little rusty you, the handling is going to be a little off and, and that's something that can really you know add up your hours and and that's uh talking about hours for uh for check rides and such um the FAA minimum requirement for hours for for example for private pilot is 40 hours um now like i said part 141 is more structured and they have different uh minimums um So at my school, uh, you're required to have at least 60 hours before you're submitted for your check ride. Well, at a Part 61 school, you could have uh, the FAA minimum, which is 40. Uh, Another example, that would be when you're doing instrument training, whenever you are looking at uh, minimums. So standard minimums for uh, a precision approach is 200 feet above the ground or above field elevation. And our school requires at least 600 feet. So the approach could also have one statue mile visibility while the school requires two. So when looking at uh, 141 and 61 schools, if you, like I said, if you have the money to pay it out, I would recommend finding a good instructor at a Part, one, or a part 61 school uh, where you know you'll get adequate and good training. Not saying that you wouldn't get that at a 141 school, but you know, you could end up spending less money for your private and take it if you're capable to do it, uh, taking your check right at 40 hours instead of sixty. Um, but like I said, it really all depends on what you're looking for. For example, my school is a two-year school. There, there's two different there's a two-year and a four-year, one gives you an associate's and one gives you a bachelor's. And looking at it in the long run, one of the reasons why I picked a 141 school aside from the financing was with an associate's you can get your reduced ATP, airline transport pilot certificate, at uh, 1,250 hours with an associate's and 1,000 with a bachelor. So you're looking at getting into, if your career choice ends up going into a major airline, you're you're getting in at a sooner time um, by getting the degree. And then the majors, we're at a point in aviation where we are at a need for pilots, and... (laughs) that's good because more and more people are getting hired and, and, uh, they're currently trying to reduce the, uh, minimum hours for your, uh, ATP. But after the Colgan air crash, uh, they, they really looked at, um, making sure that there's, there's enough hours to, to be able to create competent pilots. And, what, what, Like I said, what that really comes down to is if you're 141, your training is more often, more frequent, more consistent since, like I said, you can get loans and you can get uh, federal funding to pay for your school. Uh, you can get to the airlines a lot quicker. But on, on the opposite end, if your end goal is to fly corporate or to do private charters or what have you that's really not going to be a big factor. So when you're looking at 141 and 61 schools, if you really want to get into the airlines as soon as possible, like I said, with with, uh, an associate's, it's 1,250 hours, and with a bachelor's, it's 1,000 hours. And that's really going to help you get that foot in the door. Um, And a lot of schools actually have uh, regional airlines that uh, operate through the school. So, uh, you know, Delta Connections or American Eagle have... Ties into certain schools. Republic Airlines has ambassadors. and It's the same for the other two that have ambassadors and cadet programs that get the word out and teach uh, or show aspiring pilots um, kind of what what happens in the regionals. You know, for example, Republic has cadet pro the cadet program that allows the you know the students to be able to go into the 175 simulators since Republic is strictly Embraer 170 175. And that's that's it's a really good opportunity.
0: Uh, like I said, if that's if that's kind of the route you're going, um, and see, that's that's kind of what you're wanting to do, right? With your with your license, you're looking to build your hours and and go one the 140 run route because you want to get those reduced minimums to go anywhere. Am I correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And and starting school, I was you know dead set on um, going through the flight school, becoming a flight instructor. Uh, going to a regional than going to a major but uh, I, I work with Clay at a, an FBO here in Waco Regional and I actually had the opportunity to experience corporate flight and one of the things I noticed is uh, and I've, I've been told this before that, that corporate is more of the the single man flying because a lot of it is dependent on your employer so if your employer says he can call you you know the night before and say, Hey, tomorrow at two, I need to fly to this location. I may or may not fly back tomorrow. So it's, there's a lot of variables, but the pay is also higher starting out. So if, if you're really getting into aviation to fly and make a lot of money, um, starting out, uh, corporate's going to probably be your best bet. Um, Right. But, but the thing with the majors and i'm a second generation pilot my my father flies for united he's a captain on the 73 flown there for 25 years started out with continental express then went to continental uh then after the merger he's with united um it's it's very good for a family man because they give you minimum hour pay so the they're Uh, airlines pay you a minimum of 75 hours every month regardless of whether or not you fly it and you can cap out at 92 hours and that's great because they also have um crew time so you can only have x amount of hours to be flying or be with the aircraft and after that they make you step off and then they'll they'll send in a, a relief pilot um and that's really that's good because a lot of the issues with uh, corporate flying is you'll have an employer that's very pushy. You know, they could say, you know, I need to be here. To, I need to do A, B, and C. And really, if you want to, if you want to keep your job, unless they they're respectful of pilots, with which most of them are, they'll they'll understand. Like, you know, you don't want to fly because you've been up for the past eighteen hours, and you don't want to take a six hour trip across the United States, and. That's really something to take into account where if you're just, you know, planning on being single and being gone all the time, not saying you wouldn't be with the majors. um, That's something that could help influence your decision. And and Clay and I both have had a little bit of experience with uh, corporate flying. And and like I said, starting out, it's a good opportunity for me uh, because the pay is good. Uh, I have a very flexible schedule, but if you're looking to settle down, if you already have a family, uh, it's it's recommended that you could look into, I would at least recommend it, unless you find a good company, uh, to start looking into a regional airline like Delta uh, Delta Connections or uh, American Eagle or Republic or Mesa or what have you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. See, and, and, and he has a different philosophy on flying than I do. I I have always wanted to do either military or uh, corporate flying. And I found out that military really wasn't the route that I wanted to go. So I, I've kind of been pushing my way through going to the corporate side of things. And I think that that fits me well, because I like the flexibility. And the, the structure that the airlines give is is great for some people, but for me, I like to, I like to be able to go on a whim. I'm very much somebody who can pick up and go and enjoy that kind of stuff. And so with the corporate side, I see that, but I also have heard horror stories of passengers or people that they fly for that, can be nightmares i mean you can have somebody who wants to fly to one state and then realize it's it's, that's not where they wanted to go and then they change it mid-flight and you're having to deal with that kind of thing or you're having somebody who's disrespectful or gets belligerent on the plane and and that can that can degrade your experience and it's all different for everyone who has everyone has different experiences you know so the way that we look at that kind of thing and the way that I look at it is I would love to fly for somebody who uses their their aircraft for business and gets from A to B and has a has a very respectful uh, viewpoint and uses that aircraft to to I guess do business and it it that viewpoint and that use of aircraft is significantly different than someone who uses it as just their. Basically, their regional airline to get them wherever they want to go for the weekend, you know? So that's kind of the way that I look at it. But I enjoy flying both, and I hope that someday that I'll be able to do corporate full-time and find a, a company that has a corporate aircraft that has a very flexible schedule and also has a somewhat large flight department that will give me the flexibility that I want going through as well as the, uh, the hours that I'd like to fly. So with that being said, I think we've kind of covered the differences between 61 and, uh, 141. And I think it's about time we go on to the news for the week. What do you think? Sounds good to me. All right. So, uh, A couple of big things in the week. Uh, A lot of people have been hearing on the media these days that uh, there was a drone strike out in Gatwick Airport. A couple was out there and they were flying their drone within, like, what, two miles or something like that of the airport? Mm -hmm. And uh, they ended up crashing their drone into one of the airplanes. And It caused a huge commotion out there, and they ended up shutting down the airport uh, for the day. Over a 1,000 flights were either diverted or canceled, which displaced 140,000 passengers due to the height of the holiday travels. This was on the 24th, the day before Christmas, which... They say is one of the uh, busiest travel days of the year. They ended up uh, finding the couple that was piloting the drone and detain them. And they're actually charging them with terrorist uh, Charges because of what had happened because it was so close to the airport and it was uh, under illegal circumstances. And this was one of 37 occasions this year of uh, drones being close to the airport. And speaking of drones, we're actually going to have a drone expert come in, Eric Rutherford. He's going to join us in a couple of weeks he's going to talk about the do's and don'ts the good the bad and the ugly about drone flying he's a part 107 drone pilot as well as a local air traffic controller here in the Waco area and uh, we're very excited to have him as part of the show uh, so continuing on the uh, Brussels Airlines had an a330 that suffered an in flight engine failure dual engine failure uh, they were going from Kinshasa to Brussels and suffered failures on both engines at different stages of the journey. So that's very, very unusual. Uh, aviation is the safest way to travel. And uh, this a dual engine failure in flight is a, a crazy thing and and they actually were able to get one of the engines ignited and continue on with the journey but it still gave a big scare to those on board uh they were going through, uh, 40,000 feet into Algerian airspace and the number one engine failed. And then as they were descending towards Brussels, the second engine failed on them. You imagine having that in the airplane? That's bizarre. I mean, you think, you think about, we have multi-engine training and in our multi-engine training, it's basically single engine training in a multi-engine aircraft, but I can't even imagine what it would be in a three thirty. That's, that's just insane.
1: Well, one of the things that uh, I've noticed a lot that people have a big fear of flying commercial, commercial airlines because of incidents like this. But what, what most people don't realize is, is at least I know for United every six to nine months, they have a three day, uh, kind of, kind of like a check ride, uh, deal where they're extensively trained on emergencies. So the first day is usually the ground stuff. They'll go over all the stuff that they need to know from system, uh, aircraft systems to emergency procedures and all of that. the next two days following are long periods of time I don't have an exact uh, number of hours I think it's it might be you know six to eight hours each day where it's non-stop back-to-back emergencies and that's one thing that people don't realize is they think that you know pilots once they get their certificates and they're hired on with the with the airlines they just they're expected to remember it but the the airlines take very extensive precautions to make sure that their pilots are properly trained and properly informed and in, on what to do during these kinds of emergencies and that's what, like I said, that's what people don't realize is that the amount of training uh, and testing that pilots have to go through very frequently uh, to make sure that in the event of uh, like a dual engine failure, that the, the procedures are well known, uh, they're executed properly, and that, that we are able to do everything in our power to make sure that the passengers are put, are put on the ground safely.
0: Yep. And uh, it's a historic year for uh, American Airlines for the for the McDonnell Douglas MD-80 fleet, the mad dogs yep. of aviation. Uh, American Airlines, their MD-80 fleet is celebrating its final Christmas in service. After this year, they are discontinuing services on all of their MD-80 and 82 fleets. So all of the airplanes that they've been using for 36 Christmases now, past 36 years they've been using these airplanes, they're going to be a uh, calling it quits on the MD-80. They're just getting too old. The the airplanes have been in service so long. The avionics are getting old. And with the ADSB coming up in 2020, it's become uh, much less economically viable. The engines are old. They are inefficient to today's standards. But they have been in continuous use since 1982, and they have served the American fleet well, especially for shorter hops across the country. Uh... Uh, according to Av Geekery, American's uh, CEO at the time negotiated a sweetheart deal uh, in the 80s um, to receive the new MD 80 fleet uh, at a ridiculously low rate. And they uh, loved the five. Seat jet. You could do five passengers across in it. Most of those airplanes didn't have a first class seating arrangement. They just had economy class the whole way through because they were used for short flights. They purchased over 200 of them now, and uh, at the time after the acquisition of TWA, they have almost 370. So that's a lot of airplanes that are going to go sit out in the desert. That's craziness, you know? I mean, think about it i i can remember flying we flew uh an american airlines jet uh, an md-80 from dallas to cancun and i think i was eight or ten years old at the time and i can remember it being the noisiest son of a gun i had ever been on it was just the loudest thing and i was not even close to the engines i think i was on the wings at the time but it was just the loudest airplane i had ever been on but people swear by those airplanes
1: I've only had the pleasure of flying an MD-80 once, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, the regionals have uh, these kind of recruitment programs. I'm currently an ambassador and a cadet for public airlines, and uh, in January of 2017, we had a kind of a training seminar uh, up in Indianapolis. They flew us all up there, gave us hotels, uh, they paid for our food, gave us uh, gift cards kind of to, to cover any costs that we had. and. On the way back from uh, I had to fly uh, Indianapolis to Dallas on American and then I took a United flight from uh, yeah Dallas to Houston and uh, when I flew on the m d80 I gotta say like like Clay said that was a noisy son of a gun and uh, when we landed we landed. Pretty hard, and I could feel uh, it would jerk, and the brakes were locking up. They're they're good aircraft. Uh, they're they're solid for what they are, but uh, you know we've got a lot of advancements in technology that that make the, the flights, the landings, and the taxis, and all of that, the entire operation of the aircraft a lot smoother. And and you know it's, sometimes it's time to put the old bird to bed.
0: Yeah, and what they'll end up doing is like American does with all their airplanes. They'll uh, they'll take the airplanes, they'll uh, fly them out to the desert, and there's a there's an aircraft boneyard. Where's the boneyard at? I can't remember where the boneyard's at. I don't recall. It's out in the desert, uh, out in Nevada if, or New Mexico, if I remember, and it's tons of airplanes out there uh, in the desert and those they fly them out there and leave them because that desert air climate preserves the aircraft so with uh, Americans in Bray air Fleet they actually needed more of the old American Eagle e135s so what they did is American went and sent out uh, a crew of maintenance workers out to the desert they took uh, I don't remember how many aircraft it was, but they took quite a few of their old American Eagle livery airplanes, uh, brought them into a big maintenance hangar out there, and brought them ac- brought them back to airworthiness to use as part of Envoy and uh, Piedmont. Those are the uh, those are the operators of the American Eagle fleet and brought those back to airworthiness. And we actually see quite a few of those out there at Waco regional where we work and uh, they, they're good old birds, but you can see they've definitely had their weathered time on them.
1: Yeah. I'd actually uh, started uh, my college experience in uh, Abilene at Hardin Simmons and uh, they're just similar to Waco regional uh, American Eagle is the only regional uh, or commercial airline that flies in and out of Abilene. And uh, they have a small, small boneyard of, of the, the 130, 135s, and, you know, there's probably about eight or nine. But what they ended up doing is whenever they wanted to update their fleet, they took the parts off of the old aircraft that were there and used them to fix whatever aircraft were, were in service currently.
0: Yeah. It's in Tucson, Arizona. The Amer- the American Aircraft Boneyard in Tucson, Arizona, Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. They've got nearly 4,400 aircraft on a 2,600-acre plot out there as, uh, as part of the uh, 309th Airspace Maintenance Group. That's part of the Air Force. And then uh, out in California, they've got the Mojave uh, Air and Space Boneyard out there as well. So kind of our last... Uh, Story for this week in aviation: A father, whose daughter had to was a is a flight attendant for Delta Airlines, was booked. He booked himself on every flight that she was on so he could spend Christmas with her. So millions of people uh, spend Christmas with their families, and uh, he was able to do it with his daughter. A man named Pierce Vaughn. Oh, excuse me. The daughter's name is Pierce Vaughn. She's a flight attendant for Delta, had to work over Christmas, and instead of spending the holiday apart, her father decided to join her. Hal, uh, her father, uh, decided to board the daughter's aircraft on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and uh, they were flying all over the country, and they ended up just spending Christmas together. What a heartwarming story, you know?
1: Yeah. Uh, my my hope is one day uh, when I get hired on with United, since you know the old man's kind of settled on the seven three, that one day we'll be able to take a flight together, and hopefully we can uh, convince my mom to fly out with him, and it'll be both of us flying.
0: Oh, that'll be cool. Get to have the have the father and son cocktail experience. The question is, who's going to be pilot in command at that point? Obviously me. <laughs> Oh yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that I'm sure that'll go over well with him, you know? Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. I'm sure, I'm sure something will work out and they'll, I'm sure United will take care of all that kind of planning and stuff. Oh yeah. All right. So I think that about wraps up this week's episode. Uh, the beverage of choice for this week's episode is the Bishop cider company, crackberry cider. What do you think, Thomas? It's delicious. It's delicious. They, uh, It's got cranberries, blackberries, apples, and crack, and they put a star next to the crack and says it doesn't actually contain crack, but it's a good cider. I mean, it's really good, and we're going to actually be doing this every week. Uh, We're going to try to get two episodes out a week. Uh, This next week, we're going to have a skip because I'll be out uh, of the state, and uh, we won't be together to be able to do it, but... Hopefully the week after, we're actually going to have a special guest, uh, Joel Martinez. He's the uh, airport manager out at Waco Regional Airport, and he's going to come in and talk to us about what it takes to keep an airport running with commercial aviation as well as general aviation and kind of give us his viewpoint on aviation from more of the managerial side. So stay tuned for that. And uh, for now, I've been Clay. This is Thomas. And you've been listening to Plain Talk. Thanks for listening to Plain Talk. If you like what you heard, give us a review on iTunes, a follow on Spotify, or leave us a comment over on Anchor. We'll be releasing new podcasts every Wednesday and Saturday.